Welcome to Talk. The Talkers are on the table today to discuss the mapping of the unknown. We'll think about the process of mapping, the as yet unknown or incompletely mapped. What are maps supposed to be? Does scale matter? Is it possible for us to map the entire present universe? Who made the earliest maps and why? How did we first guess or imagine our physical world? How did the very idea of the world come to be? Do all maps have speculative beginnings? How is the subatomic world different? How can energy fields be mapped? Is reality always observer dependent? And what is the future of our understanding of our place in the universe? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Partho Ghosh is a theoretical physicist and has been working on foundations of quantum mechanics for about 30 years. He retired from SN Bose National Center for Basic Sciences in Calcutta. Professor Ajit Kembhavi is an astronomer and works on extragalactic objects. He is also interested in data analytics and deep learning. He is from Ayuka in Pune. And Dr. Aisha Ramchandran, she is a literary and cultural historian of 16th and 17th century and works on history of cartography. She teaches at Yale and is currently in Bangalore. So Ajit, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, you know, as we sit on this tiny planet and try to look out there how do you even begin to look out and know what to look for and what role do instruments play like if we had no instruments and we were the early men what would happen uh, so you see uh, when we are talking of mapping in astronomy uh, the simplest thing to do is to map the constellations the stars in the sky that is by just looking up yes what happens is that you uh, i mean the, the sky is most uh, amazing it's obvious it's fascinating and, uh, <laughs> and when you uh, when you see it you say that what are all these objects there and the first thing you notice that five of the objects are moving around apart from the moon they're wandering but all the other stars seem to be fixed in space mm-hmm. uh, quite early on i mean the maybe 3000 years ago maybe even earlier but uh, the records say 2500 years uh, people actually started looking at the positions of stars and uh, there are no instruments to measure them with uh, so when you the, say started looking at positions uh, started measuring positions meaning uh, they found that stars were fixed in the sky and then they uh, they said which star is close to which other star and uh, uh, they mapped them relative to each and other and this was just sheer observation just looking just, up just just pure observation so this was not via telescopes or anything uh, no, like that no 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 there were no instruments whatsoever sure. but i'm sure that they had some 
simple measuring devices so they could look at angles between stars or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you must understand that our concepts of geometry and uh, arithmetic and things. This is 2,500 years old. Yeah, so uh, Pre-Pythagorean. Yeah, so, or, or just say, uh, take between 2,500 and 2,000 years ago, all the ideas were developing simultaneously. Right. right? But then uh, the point is that they could uh, map the stars and they recorded them and they were able to compare maps which were made uh, a couple of centuries apart. And from these comparison of these maps, they could make out that the positions are changing slightly. And they trace that back to what we uh, now call the precession of the equinoxes, meaning that the Earth rotates around an axis, and that axis, the North Pole and the South Pole, they are not fixed in space. There's a slight precession. There's a, there's a wobble. Yeah, it's not a wobble, it's a precision. There are wobbles mm-hmm. also. The main thing is the precession. Mm-hmm. Okay, about 28,000 years. And uh, it, it was discovered quite long ago in the past. How accurate was that? Uh, the, How accurate was this understanding? of So when, when you say they calculated it, Yes, um, I don't have a number from that with me. Sure. But uh, you see, what happens is that uh, you can see the positions changing um, in 30, 40, 50 years. For example, when an astronomer uh, goes to a telescope to observe a star, uh, there are the positions are given relative to some particular epoch. When I started my work, they were given relative to 1950, their positions fixed in 1950. But if I were making an observation in 1980, I had to precise for that. Okay, meaning there is simple calculation which allows me to get the positions today. So you can see these positions changing when you are telescopes in, in a decade or five years or one year. So this map, Ajit, that yes. you refer to, so this map of 1950 and this map of 1980. Yes. So on this, so this is a 2D plane? And you uh, map it is, something it is, on it. It is not a 2D plane. It's a sphere in the sky. Because you see, uh, the stars are all very far away. Mm. And so we see a sphere in the sky around us. Mm. And we are giving a two-dimensional position, but not on a plane, uh, but on a sphere. So which means that you are giving two angles. Right. Right? So so that is how uh, you look at it. So so this precession business, what happens on, on that map? Uh what happens is that the precession is taking place around an axis. Mm. Uh, so the positions... So there's uh, a slight circular motion? Of yes, each the, one of those. you can say that the axis moves circularly around a fixed point. Right. Okay, so stars which are at the equator would be affected the most. Stars in other places would be affected less. So which leads to small relative changes in the positions of the stars. And uh, people started doing these maps. Uh, and that allowed them to very, very accurately trace the movement of the planets in the sky. I think the question, and we'll get back to a lot of these details and and and, and skin them further. How much of this can be done without instruments? Uh, you see, what happens is that they got positions which are accurate to about a half a degree or a quarter of a degree. That is the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. At that level, they were already able. Uh, to say that to think like precision, they of course had no physical idea of what the precision. And was these are about. obviously Ajit maps drawn from the same place because obviously the night sky in this southern hemisphere is different from the night sky in the northern uh, hemisphere. Uh, all of those. You see, what happens is that the observations were made. Most of these observations we are talking about were based around the area around Greece, hmm. but there were also observations which are based from India. 
there were later there were observations based in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So you can say that the specific observers who made the notes and made the comparisons were based quite close to each other. Okay, but now you're talking of a time span of centuries mm-hmm. and there was quite a lot of exchange of information from uh, one place to another um, as a result of which people could compare the things. Aisha, you'll know some of this. What what was it about Greece or, you know, that rough territory in that rough area? <laughs> what what got them started? Everybody looked up and... You know, I, I will sort of preface this by saying this is a more complicated question about historical primacy, which is mm. to say, you know, people often say, you know, is this about Greece being first or classical sure, Europe sure. being first? And and I think it's important to say that we actually don't know, for mm. instance, what people in Polynesia or what native Indians were doing. We do know now that they obviously had enough observational skill of the stars for navigational purposes, mm-hmm. but we don't have records. So to how, know. how old are these maps that you're familiar with? So... That's the so other... these sky charts, and were they always navigational? So, so here's the first thing. Um, we don't actually have any extant sky charts until much, much later. Right. We have textual accounts of the fact yes. that there were yes. charts that Which may existed have existed. Right. Exactly. So we have existing star charts are really from the 16th century. Uh, and there are oh, some... that late? Absolutely. And so there are manuscript drawings, I will say, of the sky from the Middle Ages. But what we would now identify as but star have, charts... But you have older navigational maps? But navigational maps are not of the stars. They are course, terrestrial they are, maps. terrestrial maps. Yeah, but even those maps, the earliest example we have is from the 10th century. Oops, so where have they gone? Exactly. So one is the, I started by saying that because when we talk about what is the history, the question is what do we have that remains as you know, documents what, as records to of... prove that there was a history, right? And so we hmm. rely in part on what how many extant maps there are and the history of extant maps starts quite late. What we do have is both written records of stories about maps that used to exist that don't exist anymore or in the case of, for instance, as I said, Polynesia is really interesting because we don't have a lot of written documentation but we have still existing practices of navigation that we know go back yes. thousands of years, which means that there must have been an oral tradition. Because history of navigation is old, right? There was seafaring civilization. Like but so that's the thing, right? Ago. So that we have an oral history. We also have, I mean, I'm forgetting exactly when now, but um, Ajit may know, we have discs made from antiquity, both in um, Greece, but I believe also um, in the Middle East, that record, for instance, with, the, with pins, you know, mm-hmm. the position of planets and stars. Yes. Um, so, you know, even if we set the historical primacy question aside, who was making these maps? Like, so because know, there's, there's always an institution or a soft institution of sorts, right? Was it like meant for the for the royal family? Was it meant for... So we know that institutional making of maps starts in kind of late antiquity in Greece, you know, after sort of city-states have been established, after Euclid. Um, we know, I mean, sort of people often point to Erastosthenes uh, and the making of the first globes. Uh, people talk point to Ptolemy's two important texts, the Almagest and the Geography, are often considered these kind of central texts to the history of mapping, both celestial mapping So there were globes then, not just... yes. We don't have any extant globes. We have accounts of globes. Um, but and to- these are obviously trustworthy accounts. Because oh, absolutely. Then what about this business of flat earth that, you know, we didn't know? So that- I, <laughs> I'm often asked this question and I have to say, like, no one really ever thought the earth was flat. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's mostly, 
there's there's a gap between sort of popular ways of talking about the earth being flat versus a kind of scientific understanding of whether the earth is flat. I think it's a very important point. Um, oh, that's... And so I think that it's important to note that going back to antiquity, scientists uh, never really thought the earth was flat. And some of this has to do with a combination of the kind of thing that Ajit was talking then about. Then why do we think today that people thought that earth was flat? Uh, you see that I believe much of this is really modern thought from specific parts of the world. We just think that we happen to know things and people earlier didn't. So I think what Ajit said is right. We have this modern bias against people from prior centuries, where I think we believe that they were somehow less smart, knew less, and were less uh, informed and more superstitious than we are now. And much of that is a 19th and 20th century progress-driven account of history where somehow we are always getting better and knowing more. Right. And so people in the past obviously knew less. And so I think we project backwards attitudes that were historically we know not in fact a part of So what uh, are the cultures. earliest available available globes? The oldest available globes. So sorry. the oldest available globes we have are from the 14th, 15th century. Um, so hmm. people often point to Martin Beheim's globe that Columbus used to calculate whether he could get to the Americas, one of the most famous early globes. Um, but the most, I would say the most famous historical globes are from the 16th century where globe technology actually really uh, improves exponentially for a number of reasons. One is the rediscovery of Euclid's geometry in Europe meant that mathematical and geometric knowledge um, shifted dramatically. But the technologies of casting and making globes and the understanding of the schematic function of globes also shifts dramatically in the 16th century. So there are these amazingly beautiful globes made by Mercator in the 1540s. There are the famous Coronelli globes. I mean, you know. So if there are these accounts of globes, those globes yeah. that don't exist anymore, clearly there was some conception of the idea of a world, like some idea Absolutely. Of, a, of a whole like may have been inaccurate and small mm -hmm. and this and that, but mm -hmm. at least the notion of the whole existed. Absolutely, and more than just... How, how, how back does that go? You see, I've always been wondering mm. when children acquire a conception of the globe. Yeah, I mm. have a great You see, um, I have a three-year-old grandson and uh, now uh, I believe that he has now figured out there are different cities in the world. I know that six months ago he did not know it. Now he's acquainted with four cities in the world. So when I next see him, I'm going to try to tell him that they're all on the globe. So what is the parallel analogical process yeah. that as human race we went through? Clearly there were civilizational exchanges and maybe somebody was turning up from China in the Middle East or whatever, stuff like that may have been happening. Yeah, I mean, I think the big there are sort of two big shifts that are worth pointing to. I mean, people often point to, for instance, the so-called discovery of the Americas as being this foundational shift, partly because the so-called tripartite Earth, right, Asia... Europe and Africa, um, because of long histories of cultural trade, economic exchange, um, that sense that this is what the world is mm. um, exists as well described from antiquity onward. Uh, people understand distances because of the time time of travel. There are a sort of textual accounts of navigation between these different places. So it's also possible that the sort of flat earth idea comes from the fact that we have the thought of this as one whole. Right, yeah. right. That the that these three continents are one whole. So what but happens? But the discovery of America. Aisha is like 500 years Absolutely, ago. Absolutely, 1492. Yeah. So what shifts there, and I think it's important to understand this, and this part of the flat earth narrative too, is, you know, people often joke, oh, you know, Columbus thought he could just like sail west and reach China. And so he must have thought, you know, that was flat. And that's a misconception about how do you open out a three-dimensional object onto a two-dimensional two plane, right? Mm. I mean, 
adults, children still have trouble just understanding what that means as a kind of mental operation. Yeah. Um, but what happens when Columbus does reach the Americas and people do realize that this is another continent, you have a conceptual problem, right? You have a vision in your head of this tripartite world. And then the question is, visually on a map, where do you put that new continent? Yeah. And what is the relationship of that new continent to these other continents, right? And if you want to imagine that you're opening out a three-dimensional object onto this two-dimensional plane, kind of where do you open the frame to put it? Yeah. Right? So the question of, so projections are well known from late antiquity. Uh, As I said, Ptolemy's geography actually gives us examples of projecting out you know, the globe onto a two-dimensional plane to make a map. And does Mercator's projection come along with or alongside the discovery of America? So did it have to do... A hundred years later. Yeah. So, and there are, it's important to say that there are lots of um, trial um, projections of various kinds in that hundred year period, including my favorite is heart-shaped projections of the world because people <laughs> thought symbolically the heart was the center, right? Yeah. And uh, the center, Earth was the center of the That's universe. That's more an artistic and, rendering. Um, I mean, I think it's more than artistic. It's also a spiritual vision of the place of the Earth in the cosmos. A lot of maps are cosmological spiritual maps that they have their function is not just to show people where to go. It's often to orient them in a larger space. And initially, star charts too are, you know, they're about seeing where you are in the cosmos. I mean, yeah. you're not going to actually go there. Eventually you place yourself somewhere on any map you draw. Right. So it's the, mo- the notion that maps are to get someplace is an extremely modern notion. I mean, really oh. of only the past three, maybe 400 years. Excellent. Partho, how is your world different? Hmm? The world Sorry? of, how is your world different? The world of atoms and it, it well, seems first of it, all, it's been my world is the enough. same as yours. <laughs> We're happy to share it. <laughs> yes, uh, all human beings share the same world. The point is that... How, uh, is, how is going in different? How is going inside matter, inside... Yes, well, um, it's a long history. Hmm. Uh, in the very old days, uh, people realized just by looking at whatever is visible, that there were certain different kinds of matter, as it were, mm-hmm. which make up this world. Like there are things which flow like fluids or something more solid like the earth. Then there is the air. We hear sound. Uh, and as Ajit was saying, we look up, we can see some stars. So from all this... Uh, These are observations. Now, inherently in man, I think, there is this curiosity to know what these things are. Where am I? Who am I? And all that. A lot of this is effectively an endeavor to place yourself within... That's right. And uh, so, from these observations, I think people um, started thinking about... What are these made of? Can we relate one to the other? So eventually, in the old days, in most civilizations, we find that they thought of four to five basic elements from which everything is made. Air, water, fire, earth, all that. All that stuff. Mm -hmm. In Europe, in India, Far East, everywhere practically. And it's amazing some have how, four, some have five. It's amazing how consistent it is, no? If, yes, that's very, very... It's amazing. Amazing. And then together with that, 
there was the idea of atoms. For example, the Greeks had this idea of atoms. In India, also, there was a concept of atoms. Uh, Kanad, he was called the atom eater. And the idea was that everything is built out of some fundamental things they called the atom, which could not be reduced further. Now, this is, uh, of course, an extrapolation from what you see. And I think this is where man stands out. That he's trying to understand what he is seeing in terms of more basic things. And that's, that is what and so, so can be far, called theory construction or a the, hypothesis. Exactly, because so far it's all conceptual, right? There's no, there are no instruments, there's no... Of course, no, but the, the, yeah, there were no precise instruments, but there were very simple things like, for example, like what is the basis to say that earth and fire are made of the same thing, something called atom? That is a that it's a pure conceptual. Is, it's term. a pure conceptual thing because there is, I think, an inherent uh, belief in man that there is a unity in this diversity. Everything is ultimately coming out of one thing. Mm. I think that's very natural in in uh, men. Uh, so, from these ideas, um, or rather, let me put it this way, there are examples in old texts of people saying, okay, take a little bit of salt, put it in water, where has that salt gone? Now, Every piece of that water, every little portion of that water tastes the same, salty. So the salt must have dissolved in that water. So in that process, that solid salt that we saw must have divided itself into many, many pieces. And I think from that kind of idea, people came to conclude that ultimately everything is made up of much smaller things. And eventually, in more modern times, when science was a little more developed, they identified 92 different kinds of chemicals. You mean elements? The elements. Chemical elements. So you go from having this notion that there are four to five, and then you say that, all right, then maybe they're all constituted to 92, sure. because people said, no, four or five won't do. They had more precise experiments to do and they, they but how does one map the atom itself you know that conceptual unit and how how because there is such a thing as let's say you have this tripartite world that Aisha was talking about you look up at the look up at the sky that Ajit was speaking about and there are components and there are parts of it yeah. so so the idea was that the in uh, the, the 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 atoms or the the basic elements Mm-hmm. were indestructible. But say, if you talk of hydrogen, then all atoms of hydrogen are exactly similar. All atoms of oxygen are exactly similar in their chemical properties. And then, as we know, Mendeleev built that table where he organized sure. all these elements into certain groups which have similar properties and that table became very important for doing chemistry. 
Right. Is there is there anything similar when you uh, look at the stars, Ajit? Like because here you're looking at the world around you, and you say that all right, there's a lot of matter, and maybe it's all one. What was the con- so when you look up at the sky, you see so many different stars. But was there a realization that all these stars are the same or they were different? Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, before I answer your question, can I just come back to the question that you asked yeah. him a moment ago yeah. about mapping the atom? You see, uh, when when we started entering the new era of atomic physics, the conception of the atom was the proton and the electron in it. And that does not really require a mapping. The electron is going around the proton. Well, how, how do you even come up with that conceptual picture? That came through experiments. Okay, so this because, is like Rutherford scattering? Yes, yeah, yeah. this is what I was going to come sure, to yeah. sure. next. So sure. just one sentence more on it. Is, uh, when we now look at it from the quantum mechanics point of view, so you get the wave functions, which have got shapes, wonderful sure. shapes around them. And those, in some sense, are maps of the wave functions. Oh. Okay, all right. Now, you asked me some... Stars. Yes. I mean, when you look at the stars, is there a similar analogical question to be asked or was it asked? Are they so, similar? You see that all hydrogen atoms everywhere are the same. Yeah. But stars are built out of very large numbers of particles. Oh, that's known today. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a historical kind of yes. question. Okay, so historically, clearly there were stars which are less bright and more bright. Mm-hmm. And the earliest astronomers everywhere classified them to five, six levels of brightness. And we still follow the same system because it has to do with the logarithmic response of our eyes. Right. Uh, but the other, other discernible feature was the color of the stars. Okay, so... The sun looks pale yellow. I mean, sun was not to be a star-like. Right? Do stars have different color? Yes, they have different colors. You just go up a dark night. You can stars which are clearly red. Did, stars did, did these old uh, ma- yeah, I was thinking yeah. about solar charts have whatever, these star charts yeah, have different colors? I mean, one of the really interesting, speaking of stars, you know, the observation of two supernovas at the end of the 16th century is this like enormous scientific event um, because for the first time you can see a supernova in daylight. Um, oh, and, sorry. No, please, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say um, in, in relation to what Ajit was saying that in comparison to the 92 elements, oh. there was this famous Harvard Classification, classification of that stars. Came much, yeah. But whatever, it was, there yeah. was a pat, as you were saying, big bright stars, then whatever, please uh, explain the Harvard. Uh, so, so you see what happens is that, um, I mean, without any aid, without any instruments, you can make out first the position of a star in the sky, number two, how bright it is. And the color. Uh, and the color. Mm. So these are clear differences between them, mm. but not much more than that. Okay, so, um, but then later on, when we got instruments, we realized, the two things were realized at the beginning of the 20th century, that the color has to do with temperature. I mean, even a couple of decades before the beginning of the 20th century. That wasn't known? uh, uh, It was not known. Okay, it became clearly established that... um, So what what, what were colors being attributed to? uh, It was... um, I, I really Maybe don't nothing. know. I really don't know. But Do you have a star, star yeah. composition is actually, is from at least to my knowledge, that the 
what stars are composed of is largely 20th century discoveries. And so the question is, what was the substance of the star? People just... That was a non-question. I I don't think it's a non-question. I think it's that people imagine that it's uh, made out of different matter than the planets uh, because people know what planets are made of. And so there's a lot of speculation Right, but they are considered for a long time to be more stable ele- materially than yes, planets yes. are. So, were, were, were stars thought of as round objects? Yes, I mean this goes back further. I mean, you know, if you think about the shift from the Ptolemaic universe to the, um, you know, what we the uh, Copernican universe, one of the shifts is that Ptolemy and the Aristotelian universe imagines concentric spheres. Right, the Earth is at the center. Right. Then you have the planets. Then you have the fixed sphere of the stars around them that is understood as a concentric circle that is rigid and unchanging. Right, and so everything under the moon is changeable. Uh, everything beyond the moon is fixed and unchangeable matter. So when we shift to the heliocentric Copernican universe, one of the things that's discovered by Kepler and others is not only are all the planets made of different kinds of matter and have elliptical orbits and all of this, but that stars themselves are unstable. And this is why the supernova observations are so important, because the supernovas appear and then disappear. So it must mean that stars are not fixed and made out of unchanging matter. They too change, right? So there's a lot of speculation for centuries about what is the substance of stars, partly because of that shift to a Copernican universe in which the don't have this sort of fixed circular kind of understanding anymore and people observe comets the um, the sighting of Halley's Comet hugely important in the 17th century um, the supernova sightings uh, the transit of Venus observations in this in the um, uh, 18th century all of these so it all gets pretty dynamic absolutely right and so that's part of the history of what leads up to 20th century uh, work on the matter of stars themselves there are two things here so very interesting from what you ask one even until the second decade, 1920, it was not clear whether whether stars are liquid or solid or gas. Mm. Number one. Number two is that you say that stars are spherical because they appear to be round in the sky. Right? But what is very important to know is that it's entirely the effect of the atmosphere. Meaning that stars are literally point objects. They get spread out by the atmosphere. So suppose a star were a very distant cube it will still look like a sphere to us if it is unresolved. Was it always thought, Parthoda, that uh, atoms were solid? No, um, in the ancient times. Um, actually, the precise concept came, came with Dalton, the chemist. Hmm. Hmm. Before that, the ideas were a little more vague. It was Dalton who really put atomic theory into a scientific form. And then came the kinetic theory. It's the movement of atoms... Uh, you know, bombarding against each other or against the walls of the container, from which he built up, or scientists built up, various uh, explanations, uh, I mean, explanations of various phenomena like pressure, temperature, and so on, viscosity. All these things could be explained I think very well in terms that, of atoms, yeah. the Daltonian type of atoms. So I think that. So what what is this Daltonian atom? It's one round object. Every yeah, uh, it, it was a smallest. Well, it it's not stated very clearly, but yes, they are hard balls, basically oh. hard, very small, invisible, also indivisible. You couldn't cut an atom. Oh. That was the Daltonian Dalton's concept. But then. Uh, there was another, uh, in the 20th century, 
So then there is, once you have that conception, then there's nothing to map further because it has no components. It's just one thing that you need to observe and everything is made up of well, more and more There were problems like if they're hard balls, then how do you combine them into something bigger? How do they combine? Mm -hmm. What What is it that makes them stick? These were all problems which uh, they couldn't solve. Mm -hmm. But then uh, two things happened. One is that some uh, philosophers who were positivistic philosophers like, as well as scientists like Ernst Mach mm. and the chemist Oswald, mm. they said all this atomic theory is nonsense because science must be based on observations and it is only our uh, sense experiences which are important. So how do we go from the idea of the atom to actually seeing an atom? Yeah, so this is the very interesting point that I was trying mm. to make. So they said that anything that you... Science must not use in its constructual uh, aspect anything that you cannot ab observe. Science has to be based on observable quantities. Since atoms, by definition, are not observable, it should be possible to do the whole of physics and chemistry without talking about atoms. So the very reality of atoms was questioned. And the person who solved it brilliantly in 1905, as late as that, was Albert Einstein. Right. He analyzed the motion of small suspended objects in emulsions. It's called Brownian motion. Right. And people thought that these little particles which are seen, which can be actually seen to oscillate, are actually living things because only living things can move on their own. But Einstein explained was very successful in explaining how the Brownian motion occurs as a result of bombardment of these particles by the underlying atoms and molecules of the gas. And he actually uh, gave a mathematical formula of how much this should move in a certain time. And that was found to be correct. And then people said, ah, then atoms are real. So the reality of atoms was first established by Albert as late as 1905 That's by crazy. Albert Einstein. But wasn't wasn't there a problem of there being something constituting everything? No, I mean one is to say that you know one can do all the physics without having the notion of an atom. But was it replaced by like how can you have molecules if you don't have atoms? How can you have you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So therefore, was atoms, molecules, by... according to the positivists. Atoms, molecules, everything had to be discarded. Right. And you have to have a new kind of So you just observe the phenomena and so long as... But they didn't succeed and Einstein succeeded and the atoms and the molecules and their reality all came back as it so was. I think it's, I mean, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I think yeah. it's worth saying that the problem that uh, Parthoda is bringing forward is really 
historically crucial, which is, can we talk about something we don't see? Exactly. And can we map something we don't see? Exactly. And does it matter if we map something we don't see because we're not sure that it's totally real because we cannot empirically touch it, right? And that fundamental problem, I think, is... And I think the funny thing here is that can you end up mapping something that doesn't exist? I mean, that before, you, before you observed it. Right, absolutely. And I think that that's can the Can the map sort of, precede the observation? Correct. And in right. some ways, does the map make possible the observation as yeah. well, right? And yeah. so I think that's a question that's common to all of our fields in different ways, which is, you know, you think about something like mapping the world. We were not... The first photograph of the world from space is from the Apollo missions, Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so... We've had maps before that. And one of the things that's astonishing about that famous picture, you know, of Earthrise is that all the maps and the photograph looked the same. And yeah. if you think about how is this, is exactly your question, which is no one actually stood there and took some aerial view and then drew it, you know, there were no satellites. Yeah. So how do you map something with such precision that you cannot actually see? And in the case of, you know, early on the 16th century, when Columbus went to, to the Americas, you know, there were a handful of people in the world world who had actually seen and had empirical experience of that thing being there, right? So you come back and tell me, hey, I found a new island. Why should I believe you? Right? It's exactly that same question posed in a different domain. So when was the first observation of the atom made? Like when did we look at something maybe inside a microscope and say, hey, there's an atom? Well, as I said, uh, direct observation. Yes, Oh, because you know, much, much later. Much later. Much later. It's only when the... This is with the electron uh, microscope. Yeah, electron microscope. yeah, yeah. That's a very recent phenomenon. But when, but after Einstein came up with his ideas in 1905, were people reasonably sure that something like atom existed? Yeah, yes, it was so convincing. And people say that for that one piece of work, which it, introduced the idea it, of random walks and all that, and... Uh, is everyone sure today that atoms exist? Is that okay? <laughs> You, among uh, scientists, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then there are flat earthists of the yeah, atom, right? Yeah, flat earthists. But I, not, I really not but, heard an analogy of flat earthists in atomic physics. <laughs> but but let me say, uh, atoms and molecules are, uh, are, people believe in them, but their internal constitution is another matter. <laughs> yeah, like what happens if you go in, I mean, if we had the ability to send a probe inside yeah, an this atom? Is, uh, this is the... Fantastic like what thing. does it look and like? This came in 1911 hmm. with Rutherford's famous experiment, which you have already referred to, right. the Rutherford scattering, where he took a thin gold leaf and started shooting alpha particles. These are nuclei of helium. Now we know he didn't right. at that time. Right. But there were alpha particles. You see, alpha, beta, and gamma hmm. are three kinds of radiations of particles which are seen to come out of radioactive elements. Now, radioactivity also is uh, discovered in the late 19th century or early 20th century. So he took these alpha particles and started shooting them at this gold leaf. And he was absolutely amazed because most of these alpha particles went through the gold leaf as if it didn't exist. So even if atoms existed, it was mostly empty. Yeah. <laughs> but some of them were scattered directly back. And from that, he concluded that the most of the atom was actually empty. In fact, That's he, quite estimated, an too. <laughs> he estimated the radius of the atom to be uh, one lakh times more than the radius of a tiny volume inside the so atom. So 10 power 5 times yeah, more. Yeah, 10 to the power 5 times more. And this 
entire mass of the atom is concentrated in a very tiny volume, which is now called the nucleus. So the nuclear age or the atomic nuclear age actually was born with Rutherford's experiment in 1911. And then he said, since the atom as a whole is neutral and what I see at the center is positively charged. That's that. There must be something negative outside. Yeah. So, yeah, so there must be negative particles outside. Quite and already by that time, J.J. Thompson had discovered electrons coming out of matter. So he said electrons are going around the nucleus, as Ajit said some time ago. But then that I had a problem because electrons are charged particles. If they're going round and round, that means in terms of Newtonian science, they are not moving in a straight line with a constant velocity. That means a force is acting on them. They are accelerated. Now, according to the science known at that time, and even today, any charge which is accelerated has to radiate energy as electromagnetic waves. That is the basis of antenna. Yeah. Right? So they should all lose, continuously lose energy and fall into the nucleus. There should be a collapse into the nucleus. But the atom is stable. Hmm. So that problem was then solved by Niels Bohr by That's... sheer postulating ad hoc. Do most of these maps start with speculation? Now, whether we are trying these, to map At least the... at the atomic level, definitely. Um, because there you can, cannot observe you anything. anything. There are no so observations to, to start with. Which is true. I mean, the greatest, is, there, is there a long history of speculation? Yeah, see the, in the greatest case? example of mapping, uh, something you can't see, uh, is uh, mapping of dark matter and dark energy in astronomy. So you might have seen a piece of news which appeared uh, in the Times of India. With, recently, a Japanese survey has been uh, completed. And uh, one of the persons working in that was Surud More, uh, who is associate professor at Ayuka. He joined just a month ago. And um, you see, the most of the matter in the universe is dark matter and dark energy, which we can't see. But uh, so when you say we can't see, it means that we can't see it in visible light or X-rays or radio waves or anything like that. But how do we know it exists at all? Uh, it is because of the... Uh, gravitational force that it continues to ex exert on other objects. So how do you map something like that? You can say that there's a certain amount of dark matter in the galaxies or clusters of galaxies by looking at the motions of the galaxies there. Okay, so sometimes the mass is simply not high enough to keep the galaxies together. Visible mass. Okay, but then you say that there must be some dark mass there. But when you want to map it on a very large scale, and in particular, when you want to map it in ancient times, I mean, was the distribution of dark matter in the universe the same uh, just like, after the origin of the universe or yeah. from now? And then you have all these tricks. For example, there's something called weak lensing. Mm -hmm. Lensing meaning bending of light by matter was right. uh, predicted by Albert Einstein. This is gravitational yes. lensing. Right? And yeah. he said that you will not go to observe this effect ever because it is so tiny and now it's an extremely important tool for astronomers hmm. okay because the weak lensing distorts the images of galaxies slightly bends light and uh, all these surveys like the dark matter survey i'm talking about uh, they, they so is dark matter survey straightforward now it's not it's not straightforward no uh, it can be done 
what it means is that you carry out observations for many years and you survey lots and lots and lots of galaxies and there are very, very intricate calculations that you have to do, data analysis. It can be done, but it is not easy. So, I so have to say, I'm just going to interrupt for a second. Yeah. I was um, part of a conversation actually with one of my colleagues who's an astronomer who maps dark matter. And what was fascinating... This is Priya, right? Priya Natarajan. That's yeah. right. And uh, she was showing sort of photograph maps that they've put together based on these, um, you know... Um, data analysis of this um, kind of light bending uh, that sort of tries to project in sort of photographic map form to visualize, I should say is the right word, areas of dark matter and areas of galactic matter. Uh, and it was really stunning to look at. I mean, both because of the art of the visualization, which is the art of mapping itself, right? Mm -hmm. And the way in which there are conceptual analogies between that kind of work, which is intricately calculated and trying to get at something that you can't quite see, right? But then to so make it's inferred. it visible. Yeah, so yeah. there's an element of yeah. inference. of a, a very powerful element of inference. Yeah. I mean... But is all dark matter one kind of matter? Uh, you really don't know. Because, you know, matter, let's yes. say the, the real matter, the one we know, yes. is not one kind of matter. Yeah, you so know... Is all dark matter one matter? You, you know that it is not baryonic. Okay, meaning that you know that it's not made up of protons and neutrons and those sure. kind of things, simply because you cannot have so because many Because then it could have been matter, it wouldn't have been dark matter. No, no, it could have been dark matter, but the point is that there'll be problems with what happened during the Big Bang and so forth. Right. The limits on how much baryonic matter they can be. So it has to be non-baryonic matter. But even, uh, even more mysterious than dark matter is the dark energy. Hmm. Right, so so dark energy can be traced to Einstein's requirement that the universe must be static, and his his equations do not allow a static universe. Right, because what do you mean by static universe? Is that the Earth is static? Yeah. Okay, because the gravitational inverse gravitational force is balanced by the outwards force due to the electrons and so forth. Uh, the sun is static in its shape. Okay, but the universe couldn't be static because there was no outward pressure. Yeah. So what Einstein did was that he introduced an extra mathematical term in his equations, which uh, I mean, yeah, you're referring to the cosmological of, constant. cosmological constant. Yeah. And then stopped the universe from collapsing, but quite quickly it was realized that he withdrew, tried to withdraw it, as the greatest blunder in his life, uh, because what he discussed the universe is expanding. But now you need to put it back simply because the latest observations based on supernovae type 1A, uh, they show that the universe is accelerating. It's not only expanding, but it's expanding faster and faster and faster. <laughs> so there must be something pushing it apart. And that is uh, g given the name of dark energy. So the question, Ajit, is then obviously these things are complicated enough to begin with. I mean, the real matter, you, you send probes out, you have telescope, radio telescopes, X-ray telescopes, you do these complex observations and calculations. All the other, whether it's dark matter or dark energy, is it all inferential? Uh, it Essentially, is, you 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 kind of find out what they are and what the distribution is by observing gravitational effects and gravitational yes, lifting and things yes. of that sort. You see, the so, point is that uh, if it, I mean, just think about it. That even what you a, see, what is, you see, the stars in the sky that you see, that is also inferential, isn't it? Yeah. It is just that. You're receiving the electromagnetic waves from them and our brain is processing them in a certain way. And this becomes particularly clear when you go to artificial intelligence. Okay, when you're 
try to teach a system how do you recognize a face how yeah okay so then you're saying how is the brain inferring that there is so a space so is our map of the universe observer dependent is it dependent on who we are as human beings uh, is is our map no. of the atom dependent on who we are as no. human beings no to some extent yes no, some extent because, but ajit is saying the idea no. is that it is man's idea tomorrow it might change no but no scientist will say this is the final theory the, science is always tentative this is what but, we know but today a map, that i for that i fully agree with what he is saying is the map a theory but no you see what all the time saying when i say it is objective meaning that we are saying something very specific right now what we are saying now can be unambiguously conveyed in some manner or the other to all intelligent beings but that does not mean that we are the final answer that yeah, answer the point change. is among the experts in the field there is a certain unanimity of opinion that yes. this is right yes. Our, that's all you can say that's all and you can also convey our model mathematically therefore yeah. universally in but a, we'll, 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 an ambiguous way, a way to another person it can be we'll go to aisha for this what is the epistemological status of maps like are they so i was actually going to say i mean i think there are two things i think we're talking about two slightly different things i mean there is the popular sort of picture theory of the map which is, is you know some kind of what, a snapshot of yeah, what is right. out there what you yeah. see is what you get and i think that yeah. your question about you know is it observer driven at some level comes from that kind of conceptual angle which is that the map is about is a picture yeah. but i think what both uh pathoda and ajit are saying is that map and what i would say is that maps are always schematic right oh. at some level the map is always an abstraction the map is always at some level a theory if you want to use that word um because it is a way of representing what you think the your object of attention is right and so Absolutely. sometimes it can look like a picture like when you compare the picture of earth from space with these kind of terrestrial maps but the our gps maps look nothing like actual land right so i think it's very important to remember to separate those two things out and so i think popularly we talk about maps as though they are pictures or drawings but we know for instance that data visualization even though it is something that we are looking at is not a picture in that kind of mimetic sense right, right. um and so i think it's once you understand maps in this more complicated way as visualizations of sets of relationships right whether it's relations of land relations of matter relations of energy waves whatever suddenly you have a much more expansive sense that i think makes it possible for us to talk in in more interesting ways about what mapping entails i mean that line between between speculation and observation that line between inference and you know the so called real um and to i think inhabit a space that's intellectually often uncomfortable which is the space of not knowing right mm. or not knowing fully i wouldn't say not knowing but like the cusp of actually knowing something actually uh, uh talking about dark matter and dark energy is all me, dark matter one kind of matter no let me put it this way that is also theory dependent because if you apply einstein's general theory of relativity equation where the left hand side is geometric and the right hand side is not it's 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 a uh it's what it's do you mean left hand side is geometric and okay, right hand side the, is not there is an equation has a left hand side sure, equal to course. a right hand side sure sure now einstein's equation of general relativity the left hand side is a very geometric uh, concept it is a geometry of the universe it's a geometry sure. whereas the right hand side is not it just put in ad hoc 
And Einstein himself was very aware <laughs> of it. He later on said, just forget it. It's, 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 it's wrong. It is matter. Now, if you, if you take matter on the right-hand side, if you, if you assume Einstein to be right, then you get all these problems of dark matter and dark energy. But there are people who say, who, who says this is right? Maybe gravity, the theory of gravity can be changed. It's called modified gravity. Sure. And they also produce, uh, uh, they can explain a lot of all this. Now, there, is a, there are two groups now. Those who believe there is dark matter and those who believe there isn't any dark matter. Dark matter is just another kind uh, so, of matter. So now there's a debate going on. And the latest, in one of the recent issues of Scientific American, there is an article which pushes this modified gravity theory, saying that dark matter probably isn't there. Now, only experts can debate on this. I am not an expert on this. I will not debate it. But all I'm pointing out is these all these things depend on the theory you are using. And that theory will turn out to be more acceptable to scientists how does the more it can explain? How, I mean, I mean, to to lay people, how doesn't even I mean, it has to be done by specialists. But how doesn't even answer questions like does dark matter exist? I mean, how do you how do you answer a question like that? Uh, how do you know that dark matter exists? Yeah. All right. You see that, but like Patho says, these are all based on a certain theoretical model. Okay, and um, uh, just for the sake of argument, what scientists believe is that when there's a well-tested theory. Now, you can look at Einstein's equations as a model of gravity. Right? Yeah. Uh, it explains it. So, it, it is not in the absolute truth. Okay? It is it is a, the, it's a, probably the most beautiful theory which man has ever created. Uh, and then, it is also, uh, it is it has passed every test so far. But, for example, when it comes to dark matter, there can be other theories. Then, you go by the beauty and the simplicity. Okay, so uh, when you look at it in a purely mathematical form, Einstein's, there's something called an action principle which gives you the theory. Einstein's theory is ridiculously simple. There's only one term in it. Okay, and if you try to put Newton's theory in that form, it becomes ridiculously difficult. Yeah. Uh, so if you took a completely intellectual approach, Newton's theory of gravity was very simple physically. It would be about the last theory that you would discover. Yeah. When it comes to all the modified theories of gravity, they become more complex. Yeah. Okay, and then they are generally designed to explain one phenomenon or the other. Okay, so it may turn out... They're not the general future. or universal enough. Uh, they, are, they are universal to the extent that in some approximation, they will go to Einstein's theory. Okay, but uh, again, uh, it's a asymmetric situation. Meaning most people love, admire, and use Einstein's theory, but there are few people who. Is there is there a that. long history of persistence of some of these theoretical urges? Uh, I, I think it's worth saying, yeah. I mean, I'll say there are two in, things in the world of terrestrial maps and navigational maps and so on. I was going to offer a couple of analogies, but I think it's worth saying one thing, which is you know the the historian and philosopher of science Thomas Kuhn, you know, in a very important book, The Structure the, of Scientific Revolutions, yeah, yeah, paradigm shifts, right? Talks so about on. paradigm shifts, and this is exactly I think what we're talking about here, which is when you have a very very powerful paradigm, the kind of Einstein paradigm, um, lots of the kinds of questions and work you can do work within the paradigm. Then there are going to be some people who will try to push it and time will tell whether that's enough to create a new paradigm or whether those are just outliers in the paradigm. Have in the world of terrestrial maps and navigational maps and whatever, these seafaring maps, 
have have there been paradigm shifts absolutely i mean and like from what to what so discovery of america is like one of the kind of classic paradigm shift examples so where how did, how did that change the map so, itself the so you can actually the map making let's say the right. conception of what map is um i would say it's well Be- two things it's yeah. one thing to add another landmass and say you know this thing is but here but it's more than that right because it has to do with conceptually shifting what your imagination of the world actually is and so i'll tell you how that works and this is i was thinking about this as both of you were speaking which is so when you add a new continent you also create the problem people had a physics of how the why the landmasses were larger to the north uh, and they had a they had a physics of the balance of water and land and the weight of it and what that must mean for how the world was held together if you throw in a whole new landmass it's not just that you have to add one continent to a map your physics of what the existence of the world is is fundamentally transformed then so, have, so there was an internal logic to begin with so that gets disturbed. absolutely and so then vespucci goes to the southern hemisphere sees a whole bunch of new stars they discover there is land there and that guess what there may be more land in the south then your whole idea of the physics of what holds the earth together in terms of land and water is completely thrown off so it's important to, I mean, we often think of mapping as being extracted from physics but from the earliest from its kind of earliest origins the visualization of the earth because it's inferential for a very very long time depends on a kind of scientific um foundation which has to do with the physics of what holds the world together and therefore what can be the distribution of land and water right so paradigm shifts happen when you have an event of that kind which requires a rethinking of the theory that allows us to map something a particular way right so that's so that the 16th century moment is often seen as being that paradigm shift shifting moment because uh i mean there are two things there is the discovery of the americas there's a supernova problem for the first time people see in recorded history a supernova with the naked eye yeah. which must mean that the cosmos is uh changing right and so your whole sense of what is the physics of the world how it fits in the cosmos the question of heliocentrism all that is up for grabs right so the shift in mapping takes place within that context and it's it's very analogous to the kinds of questions we're talking about in terms of dark matter and energy what is the cosmos etc in fact coming back to dark matter and dark matter in particular so there are a lot of speculations about what this dark matter is a lot of experiments have also been done to find that kind of dark matter so far the result is all negative therefore ultimately whether there is dark matter independent of theory there is dark matter or not eventually it has to be an empirical test is there, is your point this is the point yeah you're satisfied with that yes yes what we are doing now but i think the problem is that it is supposed to be something that you should not be able to empirically find no right? no 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 uh, you see no. that is an unobservable thing those things should not be allowed in <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> that is right that is other no observe you see uh, what happens to dark matter is that we are coming closer and closer to actually understanding its distribution and the kind of effect that it has on galaxies okay but until we actually find what it is okay meaning that uh, until we establish its nature and therefore understand it and can describe it in terms of the equations which are known to us there's always the possibility that a completely different theory will emerge right i will look at the recent discovery of gravitational waves Uh, you see that in the early 1970s people looked at the evolution of neutron star binary and then there were these two neutron stars going around each other and then they 
it was expected that such two very massive objects going around each other so close to it, when they were so close, they should emit gravitational waves and therefore the orbit should decay. Hmm. Now the rate of decay of the orbit exactly matched the predictions of Einstein's theory. Okay, so it was established that gravitational waves are being emitted by that object. Okay, but on the other hand, we have not detected them. So it would be the same as right. as showing that electromagnetic waves are being detected, uh, are being uh, emitted, but not being able to detect them. And we wouldn't have this conversation speaking into the microphone now at all. So, uh, Ajit, training tracks just a little bit because you seem to be the one who might know this. None of us have a clue. Create the universe for us. What is it like? Is it like, is the universe itself, the whole universe? Yes. Is it like one round thing, one <laughs> ellipsoid <laughs> thing? Like, what is it? Is it yeah, like that, a flat thing? It's uh, not flat, obviously. No, no, no. It's, it's, in not, fact, it's not, it is it's amazingly not, it flat. cannot be paper flat. Yeah, yeah it, is, it is amazingly flat. <laughs> you see, the so sense what, that... In, when, where, where, and where the hell are we? Like, flat where, universe. Where, yeah, so... No, what is your question? Is, what, uh, what is the shape of the universe? The, you see, the, the you cannot visualize the shape of the universe. Why? Because, uh, see, you're, it is like this. The shapes that physics would talk about are in four-dimensional space-time. Yeah. Okay, so when you talk of curvatures, uh, it, is, uh, it is really not... I mean, uh, to give an analogy, you can sit on the surface of the Earth and calculate the curvature of the Earth, which cartographers uh, all the time do. Uh, but in order to visualize that, you need to go to the third dimension. You can, you, the surface of the Earth is two-dimensional. We can establish that it is curved, but we cannot conceptualize it unless we go out in space and look at no, it. No, so I'm, I'm not asking you to take a picture of the universe yes. I'm on the basis of all the data that you know and all the observations that have been made. Yes. And let's for a second take ourselves out of the equation. We don't exist, but yes. somebody happens to have all this data, some computer. Yes. What is the shape of the universe? It is, like Partho says, it is amazingly flat. In the sense that in three dimensions, it, it, it's flat it slices, uh, it, is, uh, it is like a Euclidean universe. Okay, But then overall, okay, overall, otherwise it could have been like, to give an analogy, it could have been like the surface of a sphere or it could have been like a saddle. So it is not. It is. So when uh, you say flat, what do you mean? It's like a paper... If you well, what it means is that when you does when, it have edges? Does when, the when you look at edges? the mathematical form of the metric, okay, the geometry, and then when you take away time, then it appears the geometry is very simple. It is like the geometry of a three-dimensional flat universe, flat plane, plane. something like that. Okay, but, in two-dimensional plane. But does it, it does it have edges or it falls no, into itself? It, it, it doesn't have edges because it is infinitely large. Yeah, and. Uh, you see, it is like this. When I when I look further and further into the universe... And what's the distribution like? Because you refer to the word distribution in the context of dark matter, dark yes, matter a yes, few times. Yes. So, so is it so, more busy so, in the center, more busy in the... No, there is no center. You see that the, of course, the, greatest, the greatest thing about modern cosmology is what is called the Copernican principle. Yeah. Okay, meaning that we are not in a special location. Yeah. So there are two things here. One is called homogeneity. Yeah. Meaning wherever I go, the universe must be the same. More okay? or less, on a large scale. Yeah, on a large scale. On okay? an average. On an average. And then in whichever direction I look at, uh, it must be the same. And right? isotropy. Isotropic. Okay, yeah. so these are the two great assumptions that you make. Yeah. 
So you could give up these assumptions. And people have tried very hard to see whether you can break isotropy, for example. Yeah. But uh, they lead to lots of difficulties. But on the other hand... We so, can... so, Ajit, when you you visualize the universe... Yes. If you try to, which presumably you do... Yes. It's it's like a flat thing. Uh, you see, uh, like, I think that the homogeneity and isotropy are easier to visualize. And... Uh, the trouble is that at every scale that we have measured, there's a breakdown of isotropy. Okay, in the sense that the matter is not distributed uniformly. So locally, it's anisotropic, but universally, it's isotropic. That uh, even yeah, on large very scale. large scales, even on very large scales, uh, it it has got all these bridges and large structures. On very so large what scale. are the largest things in the universe? What you would call hundreds of megaparsecs, it means hundreds of millions of light years. Okay? So you can have structures which are as big as that. Okay, but these are all strange. Because, you know, I think Aisha and her predecessors seem to have struggled with what holds the earth together. Well, I think that uh, one question... Uh, do you have similar worries about well, balance? And... You know, the question you're asking is about boundedness. Yes. I think yeah. that you, you can only ask a question like, what shape is it if you imagine it bounded? It to be bounded. Right? And so I think that part of the kind of... I think Ajit's not answering your question comes from a place of imagining boundlessness. Right? And so I think that there is this sort of analogous... It's the two things I'll throw out. One is, you know... It's in the course of the 17th century that people were able to think about the idea of infinite space, right? That the notion of infinite space as a concept that is, you know, theoretically useful and that may even be true in some empirical sense is really only a 17th century So, but idea. we don't live on flat Earth, but we live on a flat universe. Flatish. Uh, flat dimensions. Flatish. <laughs> but the boundedness, but it's, it's complicated by the fact that we are bounded in time. Can okay. you map the entire universe? I know it's boundless. No, let me come to that. What yeah. do you mean by... Where where you run into trouble hmm. is that... Let's say that I want to establish that the universe is very is infinite. Then I should be able to... However far I look, I should be able to find more galaxies. There. Correct. The problem is that we are bounded in time. In the sense because that... Because there have been I, that many mil billions of years since... No, as, as, I go, as I go further and further... I'm looking into earlier and earlier epochs of the universe. Yeah. And eventually, I come to a point at which I cannot see any further. Because you've reached the Big Bang or whatever. Yeah. Okay, so so what will happen is that, so you can you can go through the first few million years after the creation of the universe when you start seeing things, but the universe was opaque at some point and then it again became transparent. So, so you see, uh, in that sense, the universe is bounded. Meaning that you you believe that the Big Bang occurred 10 to the 10 years ago or so, 10 to the 11 years. And then, uh, so that's only the greatest distance that you can see. But on the other but hand... That's, 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 that's a statement about the universe or about us? No, about the universe. Right. Okay, but on the other hand, that does not mean that the universe is bounded. Because Aisha made this very important point. The last one. Uh, is that... Uh, it's again like living on the surface of a sphere. Uh, so there is no, there is no bound boundary. There are no edges. Yeah, yeah. But, but then. The but there's an inside on a sphere. There could be an infinite universe, but you will have no access to it ever. You see, there are, there are, uh, there is a model called the Friedman model, which is usually used by cosmologists. It has three types of solutions. <laughs> Right. Uh -huh. The spherical, the saddle. Whether it's an open universe or a closed universe, 
if it is open then it is it critically open or totally open so you, what you do is you plot the radius of the universe as it were some scale sure versus time and then you plot so you may get a curve which goes up and comes down that's a closed universe otherwise it can keep on increasing forever so such diagrams you can find in books on cosmology yes so that's kind of rough map you can say But the interesting thing is that uh, we imagine from all the einstein's equations uh, that it could just go on uh, it could go and be pulled back in again that's right or it could go on expanding but it just slows down as it expands so finally it goes to zero velocity at infinity or it will have finite velocity at infinity the problem now well, is that it, we are in the accelerating acceleration phase <laughs> So the acceleration phase, meaning that as far as we can see, it is accelerated, and but again, those again, are, this is all pretty complex. No? The 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 fact <laughs> is that the, <laughs> actually, actually, to the, as as Ajit rightly said, to imagine anything in four dimensions is mind-boggling. You see, every event in this universe, everything in this universe can be represented as as an event. Now, an event takes place at some point of space, which has three coordinates. And is there is there, an, is there an equivalent of latitude longitude for the universe? Yes, very much. There's so that is like a unique position. There the, the, the are things called the galactic coordinates. So there are. Okay, yeah. So so what? So you can give a specific location, and some alien turns up. You can just point. Oh, absolutely. It. So you can just go to and a specific fact, place. In fact, it is exactly like her coordinate systems, her maps, which are latitude and longitude. So I got galactic latitude and galactic longitude. And in fact, what is very interesting is that the entire galaxy is spread over the equator of the coordinates. Yeah. Right. Where the where the Earth is spherical, but the map of the galaxy. Shows that it is just a flat object. It is not really. It is not. It is not absolutely thin. It is a hundred thousand light years from there to there, end to end. But it's about just a six, seven, eight hundred light years thick. Yeah. But towards the center, it has got a bulge which is a bit bigger, which sticks out. Okay, and so that because of the fact. So, that what's the, the future? Rotates. As as in the future, do you think we'll be able to map the whole thing, the universe? We already have. Pretty good maps of the universe. The fact is that since we can't see everything that is in there, right? Yeah. And then, like yeah, the title of our discussion today is mapping the unknown. So we are rapidly we continue to discover the unknown, just like you go and discover tribes in the Amazonian jungle. Even now, you discover. New tribes. I'm sure that people must have met them. But it'll, it'll ago, become but less and less frequent as we go forward. Yes, as we go what, forward. What's In the future, Partho? What's the future? Well, let me just um, say something I, I'm dying to say, which Please. is that if you go down to the micro world, if you really want to see what the the fundamental particles, then you have to perform a Rutherford kind of experiment with extremely high energy. projectiles which will bombard the system and that's why these all these huge uh, accelerator machines are built the large hadron collider and sure. so on now they're so expensive to build that nobody will give you the money unless you have a convincing theory that i'm going to find something so therefore there is a certain uh, reversal unfortunately of unfortunately for 
<laughs> the empiricist in you, you need to come up with a good theory to be able yeah, to convince. Yeah, the problem is just this. You can't any longer go from observation to theory. You have to go from you theory to observation. You have to go to from observation. theory to observation. <laughs> and so, therefore, there are, there are all kinds of theories being um, evolved. The most successful theory for the micro world is, of course, the standard model which predicted the Higgs boson. The Higgs boson has been found. Now people are trying to see whether they can go beyond the standard model. So there is no stopping because people know that whatever you know today will change in future. So I have to and say... The, you have to go beyond what you already know. That's the inner urge of man. And also uh, substantiated by the nature of nature. We'll end with you, Ayesha. I mean, I know you've thought of the earth a lot more than the universe but uh, what exactly is the nature of struggle that we are I having want, here? I, I like, think I would like to close out by just giving, I think this question of theory and observation is really important and I think that it's very difficult to really say what comes first because I think that they're reciprocal in complex ways. So one, I think very easier to visualize example for instance is the discovery of, of the Antarctic continent, right? So in a lot of early maps, you see Antarctica. My students often look at this and they're like, look, they knew Antarctica in the 16th century. And I'm like, no, actually, if you read the Latin, what it says to you is the southern land that has not yet been found, oh. mapped on a map. And the reason why it's present is because physical theoretical models of the time suggested that there had to be a large southern continent to balance, to balance the, the north, <laughs> right? Now, what's interesting about this is the theory came first. They did find Antarctica, but not for the reasons that they thought Antarctica should be there, right? right? So I think sometimes theory makes possible certain kinds of experiments. Go out and explore and see if you find the country. But the reason why they are successful, which is I found the continent, is not does not actually prove the theory to be true. Right. Right. So I think that we, it's important to remember conceptually that sometimes these theoretical models offer new ways and new possibilities for experimentation that may yield interesting results that in turn require different kinds of theories to explain them and move forward. Right. And this has kind of historically always been true. This is um, with making correct predictions without being correct. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that's humbling. I mean, I think it's worth perhaps ending on a note of just saying that part of what's so exciting about both making new knowledge and studying the history of knowledge making uh, is simply that it's very humbling. You remember, there are, it's a history of a lot of mistakes, a lot of surprising discoveries, and you know, a slow and gradual movement. You know, two steps forward, one step back. Arthur, you want us to remind us about something? Yeah, I just wanted to say <laughs> that if you really go to the micro world. You don't have to go to the Higgs boson, but already at the atomic level. Hmm. It's very mysterious because the electron is everywhere yeah. at the same time. Yeah. It's both a particle and a wave. And all that kind of thing is there, which makes quantum mechanics the only theory which works. Yeah. Strange and completely ununderstandable in terms of pictures. Yeah. So now uh, some people like Dirac, for example, would say that Forget about models and picturization. That does not work. The, I mean, nature Let's is much math. more subtle than that. All you can do is give a mathematical description. Your mathematics predicts something. If you find it, good. Bad news for Aisha, like two million years out. And there may be no maps for things of this sort. But I don't good. believe that. <laughs> that's a good note to end this yeah. on. I think yeah. thanks to all of you for making it. And we look forward to having you soon again. It was a again. great pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for coming. Thank you.